My name is Deborah. I'm a writer who loves all things money. I'm Hui Yu, and I'm a financial advisor who wants to help you fall in love with money. And you're listening to Good Girls Talk About Money, the monthly podcast where we talk about how you can build a clearer picture of your financial well-being and be more confident about money in general. Hi everyone, a very happy new year to all of you and welcome back to Good Girls Talk About Money. Have you always been curious about what it takes to invest in a startup or are you under the impression that you know investing in a startup is only something rich venture capitalists can do? So with us today, we have Tanya Rove, who is the co-founder of Sophia. Um, I will leave Tanya to tell us more about Sophia in just a bit. But Tanya has founded the Ladies Investment Club in Singapore and grew it to a team of 40 female investors. And it has enabled uh, female investors to build their investment portfolio and credentials while providing hard to access funding to female founders. Tanya went on to launch a venture capital fund for women entrepreneurs. And during her time at the fund, discovered the need for both women investors and women entrepreneurs to be supported. Hi, Tanya. A very warm welcome to Good Girls Talk About Money. Hi there, Deborah. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, Tanya. So um, I'm very excited to hear what you have to tell us about Sophia today and learn more about what it takes to actually be an investor. So tell us more about Sophia. Of course, happy to. Um, so Sophia is a super exciting brand new platform launching on the 12th of January 2022. So in a few days time for us today. And it's a platform for women to really increase financial education and financial freedom for women and increase the diversity and inclusion of women in early stage investing. Now, the reason we see a gap is that uh, through our work, as you mentioned, my um, investment clubs and venture capital funds and my two partners also have very you know, similar track record in terms of investing. And we know that women are currently holding a third of the world's wealth, which is around $93 trillion. So it's no small amount of money. But the existing financial um, wealth planning and financial services industry is largely made um, and built by men and targeting uh, for male investors. So where do women go to invest? And so we believe at Sophia that a platform that offers, you know, an opportunity to gain financial skills and confidence to manage money and learn about investing and also directing that capital to businesses that we want to see in the world, that women want to see in the world. And that probably means a lot more women-led companies. Nice. And can we call anyone who invests in startups a venture capitalist? Aha. Uh -huh. So, this is a good question and, and, and part of Sophia, um, at least our foundation course, which is an introduction to um, startups, angel investing and venture capitalist, um, venture capital funds, uh, is there to demystify a lot of these questions. So Sophia exists because we know that for many, many people, these terms are all just jargon. And um, we want to demystify in sort of a very safe, welcoming and support focused environment. So an angel investor is someone like you or me, Deborah, mm -hmm. who invests small amounts of money, usually our own cash from our own pocket, into really, really early stage companies, which are known as startups. So 
that's you and me as individuals taking money from our own bank account and handing it over to um, the founder of a, of a very early stage company. A venture capitalist is someone that works or runs a fund, um, meaning they go out to um, other investors and they raise the money, bring that back to their fund. They pull that money together and then they are responsible for going out and finding the startups for that fund to invest into. And they are also responsible for nurturing those relationships. So they, you know, try to make sure that the businesses that they, that the startups that they're backing, you know, are growing and getting more funding, et cetera, et cetera. So venture capitalists or venture funds, I should say, are usually regulated by, um, you know, the financial regulator within each country. And we as individuals are, are obviously not. Um, there's also crowdfunding which is a sort of different model of, of investing. And, and there's equity crowdfunding and non-equity crowdfunding. So there's, there's lots of different ways um, that people can invest. So crowdfunding is, is a platform where startups super, super early can list that they're raising capital. And then individuals like you or I can go onto that platform and pledge a sort of smaller amount of money. A lot of them are not for equity because of the regulatory requirements around equity crowdfunding. So often you get stock or something different in return to your, to your um, money than a monetary investment. Nice. I think this is really something that I've been so curious about, you know, like if I put money in, am I an angel investor? Am I a venture capitalist? And I really like that, you know, you've kind of um, done that distinction and sort of explained the differences between each and every one of them. Further to that, you know, when it comes to the word investing, I think many people like myself, you know, we think along the lines of putting our money into unit trust, uh, dabbling maybe a little bit into the stock market, um, you know, putting some money into a fixed deposit account. And hopefully in five years, 10 years, we get some sort of like a guaranteed return on, on our money, on our savings, right? Um, how realistic then is it for an ordinary woman um, who draws a salary to become an angel um, investor and and I guess, like you said, a VC is a full-time job. So so let's start with how realistic is it actually for an ordinary woman on the street to become an angel investor? Very, very good question. Um, so to be an angel investor, it's, it's, it's very accessible, you know, clearly much more accessible than being a venture capitalist, which, you know, is a career choice. So angels are ordinary people on the street, as you say. Well, the caveat to that is that you really need to have disposable income to invest. Um, that could be $5,000. So it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and that really depends on, you know, the, the company that comes to you to raise capital. So I could be the founder of a startup and I'm just starting out and I just need 30,000 sing dollars. So I go to all my friends and family and maybe I knock on your door, Deborah, and I ask for $5,000. Conversely, I could be, um, have been in business for a year and I need $500,000 from my friends and families and angel investors. So I could say, hey, Deborah, do you want to invest in my startup? But, you know, minimum amount I want is $75,000 or $100,000. So it really depends on the stage of the company that you're putting money into, you know, and what they're intending to do with that money, because some companies need a lot more money than others. So product 
based companies clearly need um, to purchase all their product up front. You know, there's tech in, in, um, investment that goes in for a lot of like, you know, apps, um, any tech enabled companies, which most companies are these days. Um, so aside from, you know, the fact that it, it is accessible, there's two things you really, really need, which are disposable income. So one would expect you to have, you know, financial security before you start putting your money into startups, because it is high risk, um, but it's also high reward. So it's money that you really can afford to, to lose that you should be investing. And then the second thing is that as an ordinary person on the street, as you, uh, to use your term, where do you find your investment opportunities because they don't just come knocking on your front door. So you need to be out there and networking and where do you find where do you find them? And and often people join angel investment networks for that very reason because they're a source of great deals. But you know, you could also join Sophia. Nice. <laughs> and we can help you with that, especially if you're interested in women led companies. Great. And, you know, I think this really comes back to a personal situation, a personal story that I have. And, you know, I wished we've met a few years earlier so that I could go to you for, for, for this advice, right? A couple of years ago, like a contact of mine was raising around using Cedars and he was raising from his customers and people who generally believed in his mission. Um, and I really wanted to go in with some money of, you know, of my own because I really loved his products. But bear with me because there are a couple of layers to my, my, my story and questions, right? I thought about putting $5,000 into his business. And then I realized that even at the startup that I was working at, the investors were not actually seeing any returns on that investment. And I really wondered, like, when would I actually get to see cash come back to me? So my first question is, is cash return something investors in a startup actually want? And, you know, if I were to put in $5,000 into, say, my sister's startup, let's say, for instance, she's interested in starting a digital bookshop, for example, right? You know, is that considered a loan? At what's, you know, what's the difference if, let's say, I'm expecting that $5,000 back plus some more, and if then, you know, um, me putting that money in as an investor? Firstly, she might want to check out this digital bookshop called Amazon. She might have heard of them um, as competition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so is ca a cash return something investors in startups actually want? Well, I think it's something they want. Um, is it something that they expect or that they get is probably the right question. And I think they probably do not expect a cash mm. return, um, at least not in the short term, should I say. Investing in startups is known as patient capital. So, you know, the clue is in the name. You need to be patient. This is not something that's fast. So startups don't make a billion dollars overnight. And I think sometimes we think that companies have popped up out of nowhere and have taken the world by storm. But actually, they've been, you know, working solidly probably for years behind the scenes. And we've just clearly not been aware of them. So you need to be prepared to wait. So it could be, you know, three years, or it could be 10 years, I would hazard a guess and say somewhere in the middle. So for me, I sort of think around a seven year mark, but 
it, again, it really does depend on the on the company that you're investing into and what their you know growth potential is is like. And it could never happen at all. So um, you know, some people say nine out of ten startups fail. I hate to use that word fail, but and so high risk, high reward. I keep coming back to that. So you know, you should really only start to put cash into startups where you know cash that you can afford to lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that that means you should make uh, unwise decisions or think frivolously about who to invest into, but expect to potentially not get that cash back. And secondly, if you are going to get a return on your investment, you know it's not going to be next week or even next year, most likely. It's a it's a long term game. Yeah, and and I think that's why in the end I decided that you know the five thousand dollars would see a more immediate return if I were to put it into an investment account. Um, but also one of the reasons I decided not to move ahead was also because I wasn't sure what kind of terms I should be asking for, right? And could I even dictate what I wanted with my money? Or like, are some investors just so insignificant that we just have to take what we're given? So in such a situation, if I were to, let's say, decide that I wanted to put that $5,000 into this startup of a friend, what kind of, you know, how should I actually have that conversation? Because I was really clueless about how to even start to ask him about things, right? Like, I give you that $5,000, is it even reasonable for me to say, hey, you know what, does that mean I own 10% of your company? You know, that kind of stuff. So how how can we talk about these things? Yeah, this is an even better question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if it was an immediate return that you were looking for, then yes, startups are not, are not your thing. If it's a longer term investment, then yes. So you obviously, you know, put that into an investment account because you were looking for uh, a, a quicker return. Mm-hmm. So that that's your motivation. And I think you always have to come back to what are your motivations here with this money? What what, do, what are your financial goals? And what, what do you need and when? And I think that will drive a lot of your investment decisions. So when it comes to terms of the investment, there's not really one answer to this, unfortunately. And actually, investing as, as a whole, as a concept, at least in startups, is very, very gray. I don't think it's very black or white and and one investment group or venture fund will do things slightly different to the other. So anyway, essentially, if you are the first investors into a company, then you are likely to have some sort of say, some voice as to the terms of that investment. But if you're investing comes, so if you're popping $5,000 in after I've just put in $500,000, um, then you know one could, you could probably expect that your say is going to be you know much less significant um, than than mine, and also because I have already agreed terms with the founder because I'm a big investor and I came first. You know it would be unfair on me if then you came in and invested an amount, even if it was the same amount, but on different terms. So you often find that the first investors will set the terms. So meaning the contract will decide, you know, when, what what the, uh, let's say it's equity. So what the valuation is of the company, um, if I'm taking equity for that amount, or um, perhaps it's a safe note, what the terms of that safe or convertible note are. So it's, um, it's probably fair to say that your $5,000, unless you were the first investor, you would probably have had to have followed the terms that other investors that had gone before you had set. Okay. 
I guess that's like one of the most um, gray areas that I, I personally have struggled with when, whenever it comes to, should I put my money into investing into a startup or should I just, you know, be a normal person, I would say, and put it into something safer, like, you know, a unit trust or something like that, right? Moving on to our next question, you know, if I invest in a startup and ultimately it goes bust, naturally I lose my investment. So does this mean that this form of investing is really for those who have the money to invest in lots and lots of startups for a lot of them to fail and for just maybe a slim percentage of them to become like Netflix or even Amazon where they get listed and your equity then actually becomes valuable? Um. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> next question. No, um, you are right. Um, most most um, startups do fail, and but they usually fail pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're indeed looking for the exceptional successes, this this is why investors and and particularly venture capitalists are unicorn chasing because they need that company to bring home the bacon as we say to cover all the losses from all the failures that they have had so if a fund venture fund or or an angel investor invests into 10 companies and if we're if we're going on a nine out of ten fail you need your one unicorn your one company that, that doesn't fail to really bring home an awful lot of investment because you not only need to bring home enough money to make up for the investment that you made into them, but also all of your losses that you've made. So that's why a lot of investors are, uh, are unicorn chasing. But I think it's more common these days for f- funds and investors to see things in a different way. So, mm. you know, not all companies are hyper growth companies. There's still, you know, moderate profitability amongst companies, um, solid investments. So you, instead of having 10 high-risk companies and one of them succeeds and nine fail, you could actually build a portfolio of 10 companies where maybe a much larger number of companies are successful, but more moderate growth. So it's slightly different strategy. And I guess it comes down to your risk appetite because you need a really healthy risk appetite for investing into high risk, hyper growth startups because nine out of 10 of them will fail. Um, But in any case, I think that bringing this back to Sophia at every opportunity, but knowledge and community can help you make your informed decisions. And so I think that if you are, you know, I've mentioned this several times, but if you're new to investing, just starting to throw some money behind ad hoc companies is very high risk. And that I think is where we want to sort of change that a little bit for women and build this community of women that might look like you and me, Deborah. So if we're in a room surrounded by Deborahs and Tanyas, um, all in similar stages, all learning similar things um, with the same fears and etc. you know, we can come together and and pool our knowledge and our IP and our resources as well and, and invest collectively. What would you say is the perfect candidate to join a platform like Sophia? Obviously, someone who has maybe not so much disposable income, 
may not be the 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 ideal person I would say for for your platform because if let's say we're talking about someone with enough money to sort of um, spread their risk around different startups, hoping that one of them will become profitable and marginally um, bring bring back some money so that you can keep on becoming an angel investors for other startups. Would you say that the person, the most ideal candidate to join a platform like Sophia would be someone with a certain amount of money? And if that's the case, how much are we looking at? That's a very good and tough question all at once. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I can answer very simply, you know, who, mm. who is an ideal member of Sophia? Mm. Well, I mean, that's literally like so many women like you and me. It's, it's women that have, you know, going back to my po- earlier point, it's women that have perhaps they've had a corporate job for a long time. Uh, perhaps they've made some money because they um, had their own startup. Or perhaps you're looking to change, you've had a career break and you're looking to learn something new and get involved in something new. Or perhaps you're just super passionate about gender equality, about seeing more women receive venture capital funding and angel investing funding, because the stats on that are just absolutely appalling. So perhaps, you know, you want to also have businesses in the world that are made by women for women instead of what we have at the moment, which is largely made by men for men. So there's, you know, so I, if I think of, you know, my closest five friends, they probably all fit into one of those categories. Um, So (laughs) I would say it's for a lot, a lot of us, a lot of women that Mm -hmm. look like us. I mean, typically we would see women who are what we call, um, what we call accredited investors, meaning they have met the criteria or they meet the criteria of the country that they're in to say that they are they they have a certain amount of wealth or they have a certain salary um, and that differs from country to country and this is not this is not a criteria for the mega mega wealthy this is you know at the corporate executive sort of level and and so a lot of it's much more accessible than i think it sounds so i think that um, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why women would want to join Sophia and everybody's motivations will be different. But I think probably I've listed out the, the main ones um, of why you would join Sophia. I think for a lot of women, no matter which of those categories you fall into, I think for a lot of women, they want a community. And I think one of the reasons Sophia exists is because we recognize that the investing ecosystem as it stands today is not particularly welcoming for women. And I don't mean that because men are hostile in there, but if you walk into a room and you're the only woman, just by virtue of you being the only woman, you're going to feel slightly uncomfortable and perhaps, you know, it's, and some, perhaps it's not somewhere that you want to be. Or perhaps you're a founder and you're pitching to a room of investors and all those investors are men. Again, is that really somewhere that women want to be? So Sophia is really about providing a place where women can come together and learn about investing together and start investing together. And as founders can pitch to more female investors. So it's a sort of two-pronged approach, really, solving the fact that we don't have enough women investors and we don't have enough women founders getting funding. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that because, you know, um, I've been reading this book, um, Machiavelli for Women, and some of the statistics around the amount of funding that actually goes to women-founded startups is shockingly low. 
And, you know, um, I'm just wondering if you have any stats around just how many women are VCs and investors, you know, and how can we actually go about changing this, this, this game, right? Because for, for the longest time, I personally have also felt that the investment world, you know, like the world of tech startups and things like that is really very skewed towards the men. And how can women sort of stand together and, you know, uh, bend, bend our resources together and just um, change, change the game? Yes, that is an awesome question. Uh, one of my favorites. Um, so women do indeed uh, open almost 40% of all businesses. Mm -hmm. And But we have to remember that not all businesses that are opened by men or by women are growth businesses. So a lot of, you know, people open lifestyle businesses. You know, I wouldn't have ruled that out myself when my children were super, super, you know, young, um, something to, to keep me busy, something that gives me some money, but is not something that I'm seeking, you know, major investment for and thinking world domination for. So we have to remove the more lifestyle businesses out of that 40%, but we'd have to do that for businesses open by men also. But when we think about women-led companies only receive, uh, I think it's probably somewhere around the 2.5-2.8% of all funding at the moment. We can clearly see, you know, that the investing landscape as it stands is failing women. You know, we cannot dispute that. Yeah. So women make up around two and a half percent of all fund managers as well, meaning they're the decision makers in venture capital funds. So they're generally the, the partners, the general partners, as they're called, in venture capital funds. And women hold around four percent globally of all investment leadership roles. These stats are tiny, absolutely tiny. Um, and it's in my view that if we have a more diverse investor group, so if those stats, the 2.5% of fund managers and 4% of investment leadership roles globally, if those stats were much higher, we would probably see a much higher percentage of women and diverse founders generally getting funded. It really is that simple. So if we have, you know, diverse venture capitalists and investors, we also need diversity at the institutional investor level. because. Where do those fund managers get their money from? They get their money from institutional investors. And if we only have, you know, one type of person as an inst as the institutional investors, the majority of the institutional investors, then the flow of capital starts to go wrong from there, not just at the fund manager level. So we need to ensure diversity from the top down. And that is where the logic behind Sophia comes in, because so I'm sitting here saying we need more diversity at institutional investor level, but I can't really affect the change at any of those big investment banks or institutional investors. So I have to come up with a, a different plan. And that plan is, well, if women are holding all this wealth and furthermore, no one's really helping them to use that money or to invest that money because everyone just thinks, oh, well, it's just men in this. We don't need any products, you know, for women and we don't need any women, you know, wealth managers to really target women. Then they're sitting on all this cash and actually women do sit on more of their money in cash than, mm -hmm. than men do. And so that's where Sophia comes because it was like, well, you know, clearly we can mobilize this capital, but first we need to educate and we need a community. Nice. And, you know, um, 
I have a rather interesting, I think, I hope, <laughs> question for, for you. You know, we're talking a lot about putting money into businesses and stuff like that, right? So um, besides money, you know, what else are investors good for? Actually, for, um, for early stage companies, I mm -hmm. would say as much as money, network, network and network. <laughs> Um, I think that a lot of startup founders, well, specifically um, solo founders, you know, you, you really do need to network and know people. And I think that smart founders will choose their advisors and mentors very wisely by the fact that they have access, you know, to influential people that they need on their side to grow their business. So network is number one for me. That's really good because I must admit that networking is one of like, I don't know, like it gives me nightmares. Like every time <laughs> I go to, every time I go to a networking event, I must admit that, you know, my first instinct is just to find maybe the friendliest face, you know, and stick to that one person the entire night and just have a conversation with that person. But I really have zero motivation in sort of like working the room, so to say, so yeah, yeah. I, I think this is why maybe I wouldn't find myself being a founder of, of a business so soon because I just I just can't imagine myself going into a social situation where I'm just like thinking, oh, you might potentially become an investor of mine and stuff like that. Um, but moving on to our last question, if I want to get started after this interview and put money into a startup, for example, you know, that's creating lab-grown cheese, right? You know, what, what should I do? I mean, joining Sophia is one of them. But if let's say I already know a business that I want to put money into, should I just approach the founder uh, directly? And also, how committed do I actually have to be as an investor? So um, I, get, I think one of, one of the things that I can't help but think about as investors, it's like if a business eventually runs out of money and they need some more to keep it going, do the existing list of investors, you know, are we actually obliged to pump in more money to keep that business afloat? What's your take on that? That is a very interesting question. Um, I would first ask myself if I knew enough about angel investing yet. Mm -hmm. That would be my number one question. Do I understand uh, enough to make this investment? If not, I would sign up at Sophia um, <laughs> to address your, you know, gaps in your knowledge or, or network gaps, whatever it is you have. Mm -hmm. Then I would ask myself, do I know anything about lab-grown cheese? And for me, the answer would be no, you know nothing, Tanya, about lab-grown cheese. So that would rule me out probably. Mm. Um, but you are correct. If the startup runs out of money, the existing investors may well be in a position where they have to decide if they want to pump more money in to keep it going or if it is time to accept that the company is not successful and write that investment off. Mm. And that is a super tough decision to, you know, to make and why ad hoc angel investing is tricky to pull off. Let's say the company was raising 250000 sing dollars and you, Deborah, pumped in 5000 and you didn't really understand what the founder, you know, what else the founder had raised. So the founder says to you, I'm raising 250. And you say, sure, I love lab grown cheese. Uh, I'm really excited about what you're doing. Here's my, you know, $5,000 check. What if the founder didn't raise anything else? Or what if the founder only raised 50,000? And what does that mean for your 5,000 that you've pumped into that company? 
because when the founder would have asked you for five thousand dollars, he would he or she would have said, "Hey, Deborah, I need two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and this is how I'm going to spend it: ten thousand here, twenty thousand here, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera, with a plan. And that plan would feed into their financial model and their projections. And your investment would be based on that. So if you, if that company then only raised, you know, $50,000 of their 250000 they can't actually follow through on any of those plans that they had. So where does that leave your $5,000? So I think that there's so many things to think about to ensure you're putting your money into a savvy investment. Mm. And even when you do know everything, it's still high risk, but there's lots of things that you should know that I think a lot of people don't know when they make those investments. So a lot of the time you learn those things through getting it wrong. And I don't think that there's a way of doing it any differently other than mitigating all of those things as best you can by understanding a lab-grown cheese business, understanding how much they're going to be raising, surrounding yourself by you know, other investors, being part of a community, educating yourself on investing. You know, All of those things are things within your grasp that you can control. Great. Thanks for all the advice, um, Tanya. And you know, I'm sure many of our listeners who are interested in dabbling a little bit into, you know, um, investing in startups, you know, and becoming angel investors, they'll be really interested in, you know, finding out more about Sophia. So could you tell us how can we find out more about Sophia? Which website do we go to? And when can we start to um, visit your website to sign up for the causes um, that Sophia is offering? We are sophiawomen.com and our courses are available from 12th of January. And you can sign up to do a digital course if you prefer to learn on the go, you know, on your mobile phone, on the commute, et cetera, et cetera, whilst walking your dog. Or you could join in Singapore and Hong Kong. You can join an in-person class. So, um, yeah, please, please come and check us out at sophiawomen.com. I most certainly will. So thank you, Tanya, for your time today. And I wish you and Sophia all the very best. Looking forward to seeing you girls, um, you know, seeing us women making more of our impact felt in the world of startups. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me, Deborah. Really, really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you.